Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thank you for checking out the Top Docs Radio Show. On this week's episode, I sat down with tax expert and registered investment advisor, Alan Connor of My Professional CFO. I met Alan several weeks ago and I decided I had to have him join me on the show to talk about how he helps physicians working as 1099 contractors to be able to maximize the amount of hard-earned revenue that drops to the bottom line using innovative and legal strategies endorsed by the IRS. If you're like me and dislike tax season, you're going to want to check out what Alan has to say. Here's Alan talking about what made him realize his help was needed by physician contractors. Check it out. I have a close family member who is a physician, an emergency room physician. And what I didn't realize after he was finishing his intern and residency was that as an uh, ER physician, he was actually not going to be working for the hospital. He was going to be working for a practice group in BN99. That was a little bit of a shock to me. Never really had any exposure to that. From what I've learned over the several years that I've been doing this is that most doctors that do not work for teaching hospitals are actually 1099. They work for practice groups that will actually be licensed to the hospital. Interesting. So anesthesiologists typically work for practice groups, ER doctors, radiologists. It's a group of doctors who will negotiate a contract with the hospital to provide specific services, such as staffing in the ER. And then each of the doctors works for that group for the most part as 1099 independent contractors. The IRS works on a pay-as-you-go So anybody that works for an employer that gets a paycheck on a regular basis with payroll tax deductions sees that your payroll taxes are deducted every time you get paid. The IRS requires you to do it at least quarterly. So it's not one of these where you can just put the money in a bank account pay them at the end of the year when you file your taxes. What happens if that's what you did? If you do that, you're still going to you're going to pay a penalty. And that's if you pay the correct amount, you're still going to pay a penalty because they want the money as you go. They would rather give you a refund at the end of the year because you overpaid than they will charge you a penalty for doing that. How sizable is the penalty that we're talking about? It depends. It's anywhere from 5 to 10% of the amount that you underwithheld. So the question is, is if you, let's just take a doctor who might make $300,000 a year. If your tax bill at the end of the year is $100,000 because being in that kind of a 33% tax bracket, you're looking at about a $10,000 penalty. Underwithholding can be a significant amount of money if you're just sticking the money aside, putting it in a bank account, and waiting till the end of the year to pay it. They expect you to pay it quarterly. Not to mention there's other additional benefits that you can afford yourself if you simply set it up to where you do it on a, on a monthly basis. And so we had a family member that was in this situation. Yes. He was starting private practice, working for an ER group. And I had told him, well, if you're going to be a 1099 physician, you need to incorporate set yourself up with a simple accounting system, pay yourself a payroll, and then that way you can create a retirement account for yourself in the form of a SEP IRA, and your payroll taxes won't get out of hand. You'll just, you'll do this on a monthly basis. As I was telling you before, I'm the younger brother. So as the younger brother telling the older brother, of course, my advice went disregarded until about three to four years later, I got the phone call of the IRS just sent me a bill for a really large amount of money. What do I do? And at that point, all I could tell them was work out a payment arrangement, but we're going to start fixing this problem so that you can deal with it going forward and work from there. 
So he was working in Florida at the time, set him up with a corporation in the state of Florida. I had a payroll provider that I had used. I mean, just a simple QuickBooks payroll, set him up on a payroll system and introduced him to Charles Schwab and set him up with a SEP IRA account. And we had him up and running in probably two to three hours at most. Stick around for the full interview with Alan Connor and my professional CFO coming up next. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. We really appreciate having you here. And I'm joined in studio today by Alan Connor. He's the president of My Professional CFO, and I actually ran into him and his colleague here in our office building down in Atlantic Station here in Midtown Atlanta and got to talking about what he did and thought, wow, this is somebody we got to have on our show to give some information. A lot of the people that listen to our show, are some of them are patients, of course, or lay folks who are having interest in healthcare, maybe because somebody they have in their family or that they care about is dealing with a particular health issue. But many of the folks who check out the show are physicians. So I was really pleased to introduce them to what you do, Alan, and talking about the various ways that you're able to help, particularly the small practice owner and the individual, or maybe they're just a couple of providers in an office that are trying to make their way. You've got some ways that your services are able to help them reduce risk, see more of the revenue they do earn, drop to the bottom line through legal ways of protecting them from taxes and other strategies that can really help that private practice owner. Thanks for taking some time to come all the way down the hall and join me in the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I remember when we first got to talking, you shared what I thought was a pretty compelling story about how you got into this space and started serving the healthcare sector. You mentioned that you had a family member that is a physician and they went through some issues that you're now able to help your clients actually avoid. So you want to share a little bit about what got you to where you are right now? This is definitely one of those companies that was founded quite by accident and and happenstance. I have a close family member who is a physician, an emergency room physician. And what I didn't realize after he was finishing his intern and residency was that as an uh, ER physician, he was actually not going to be working for the hospital. He was going to be working for a practice group in BN99. That was a little bit of a shock to me. Never really had any exposure to that. How common is that as a model? More common than we actually realize. From what I've learned over the several years that I've been doing this is that most most doctors that do not work for teaching hospitals are actually 1099. They work for practice groups that will actually be licensed to the hospital. Interesting. So anesthesiologists typically work for practice groups, ER doctors, radiologists. So when we're in that kind of a model, you're saying that the typical way they go about it is through a 1099 relationship. Mm. They don't do the payroll taxes and all that kind of stuff. Most of the time they do not. It's a group of doctors who will negotiate a contract with the hospital to provide specific services such as staffing in the ER. And then each of the doctors works for that group for the most part, as 1099 independent contractors. So then you've got to be on your toes with what you're paying to regards to your taxes on an ongoing basis, I guess, or at least putting what would normally be withheld for you. It's, you got to be putting that over here so you can pay. Well, it's, it's actually a little more complex than that. The IRS works on a pay-as-you-go. So anybody that works for an employer that gets a paycheck on a regular basis with payroll tax deductions sees that your payroll taxes are deducted every time you get paid. The IRS requires you to do it at least quarterly. So it's not one of these where you can just put the money in a bank account, pay them at the end of the year when you file your taxes. What happens if that's what you did? If you do that, you're still going to you're going to pay a penalty. I see. And that's if you pay the correct amount, you're still going to pay a penalty because they want the money as you go. 
they would rather give you a refund at the end of the year because you overpaid than they will charge you a penalty for doing that. How sizable is the penalty that we're talking about? It depends. It's anywhere from 5 to 10% of the amount that you underwithheld. So the question is, is if you, let's just take a doctor who might make $300,000 a year. If your tax bill at the end of the year is $100,000, because being in that kind of a 33% tax bracket, you're looking about a $10,000 penalty. Underwithholding can be a significant amount of money if you're just sticking the money aside, putting it in a bank account, and waiting till the end of the year to pay it. They expect you to pay it quarterly. Not to mention there's other additional benefits that you can afford yourself if you simply set it up to where you do it on a, on a monthly basis. And so we had a family member that was in this situation. Yes. He was starting private practice, working for an ER group. And I had told him, well, if you're going to be a 1099 physician, you need to incorporate Set yourself up with a simple accounting system, pay yourself a payroll, and then that way you can create a retirement account for yourself in a the form of a SEP IRA, and your payroll taxes won't get out of hand. You'll just, you'll do this on a monthly basis. As I was telling you before, I'm the younger brother. So as the younger brother telling the older brother, of course, my advice went disregarded until about three to four years later, I got the phone call of the IRS just sent me a bill for a really large amount of money. What do I do? And at that point, all I could tell him was work out a payment arrangement, but we're going to start fixing this problem so that you can deal with it going forward right. and work from there. So he was working in Florida at the time, set him up with a corporation in the state of Florida. I had a payroll provider that I had used. I mean, just a simple QuickBooks payroll set him up on a payroll system and introduced him to Charles Schwab and set him up with a SEP IRA account. And we had him up and running in probably two to three hours at most. When you're doing that kind of a payroll, who all would be involved? Is it just himself that we're talking to? Is he was the family member in a specialty that, that didn't necessarily have employees? So he didn't have like a front office person and nursing staff and things like that. It was in a specialty like what you described. Correct. Right? It was just him. I he see. did not have an actual okay. office. He literally put on his scrubs, went to work in the ER. I got you. And then he was 12 to 12, seven to seven, worked his shift and went home. I got you. And so that's really who these types of strategies that we'll be talking about really benefit the most. They don't necessarily have, I guess if I have a structure set up where I'm paying an MA and a nurse and things like that, I guess I'm already going to be dealing with payroll taxes. If, and that if, kind of if, you're are, if you have employees, you, sh- yeah. you should already have a payroll tax or, or some sort of a payroll system in place. But it's the doctors who get paid one lump sum on a monthly basis. And essentially what he explained to me is he got paid in gross dollars and he wound up spending gross dollars. I got you. And so then there wasn't that amount of money available at the end and then when they tacked on some penalties at the end as well. So talk about some of the strategies that one can use if they're one of those types of providers who typically is going to be doing some contracting work, whether that's all the work that they do, or maybe they some physicians, particularly in the early phase of their careers, might go out and do some 1099 type relief work, for example, in their specialty to try to pay off the student loans and things like that. So what are strategies that they can use to avoid some of those challenges? Yeah, what you're talking about early in the career, a lot of doctors will do some moonlighting. Mm -hmm. I know locum tenens is becoming very popular right now. The first thing that I would advise any doctor to do is, and any contractor for that matter, is to make sure you're funding your retirement account to the maximum amount possible. That's the biggest reduction in your tax bill that you can possibly look at. So you're going to start out with your SEP IRA and funding that to the maximum that you can. If you're incorporated, you can 
can fund up to 25% of your salary. If you're not incorporated and you just want to file a uh, Schedule C, then it's 20%. So it's better to pay the few extra $100, incorporate yourself, and get the extra 5% of your contribution. You just name it whatever, Charles Hall LLC. More often than not, doctors, because they are professionals, and it does differ from state to state, some doctors think it's in my brother being in Florida. He was a PA. He was a professional association. You'll see Dr. John Smith, MD, PA. That's the effective corporation for a professional. In New York State, it's a PC. It's a professional corporation. Mm. So those types of things, if you're practicing as a licensed professional, it's your name followed by PA, PC, whatever the state mandates that you structure your, your entity as. If I'm listening to today's discussion and I've been working as a contractor for a period of time and I've not done this yet. I mean, does that complicate matters for me? I mean, what does it mean if I've been doing work already for let's just even use this year. We're 10 months into the year. I mean, how does it change things? If you're 10 months into the year, and that's not uncommon, um, you know, I'll have doctors call me as late as November. They find out about it. (laughs) Call me as late as November and say, okay, well, now what do I do? Well, the first thing we do is we fix everything going forward. And then we take a look back and we see, okay, what do you have? And we essentially back into, you know, what your tax return would look like from that point. We can't undo the past. We just work with it as, as best we can and, and try to manage those types of things. But there's a variety of steps that we take to make sure that we check off all the boxes so that doctors can deduct whatever they possibly can and go from there. Are there some examples of typical things that come into play that help them do that, that they can legally check off that our costs? Yeah. One thing that I find that doctors don't pay as close attention to, which is kind of surprising to me, is their continuing education. Doctors will travel somewhere to a continuing education, pay $500 for conference or whatnot right. that they're attending, and forget that the hotel is deductible, the travel is deductible, things like that. So just little things like that that jump out. But then it's more so the things that they don't even think about that might be available to them to save some money. And that's really kind of the gee whiz moments of, I had no idea I could do that. One thing I talk to a lot of doctors about, and it obviously depends on specialty and the amount of income coming in. Started talking about, you know, fund your SEP IRA. Well, you know, if you're a doctor that's been practicing for a period of time, we all know that physicians have comfortable incomes. I don't know any doctor that feels they're paid well they're worth, and mm. but they work hard. They deserve to keep as much as they possibly can out of it. We talk to them about things like setting up a pension for themselves. That is something that's age-weighted. Most people think of pension by something that you got when you were a 30-year right. employee with right. IBM. Yeah. But a doctor can actually set it up for themselves and front-end load it or back-end load it, depending on their age, and save a significant amount of money in taxes. Now, is this in addition to things like the SEP IRA that you mentioned? This is. It is in addition to that. That works along with a SEP IRA is basically an independent person's 401k. For some reason, it worked. Self-employed person, The self-employed person's 401k. So you do something like that. And you take a 45 to 50-year-old physician who's making several hundred thousand dollars a year, the opportunity to put away an extra hundred, $150,000 pre-tax, that's a sizable savings considering your tax rate might be by the time you're taking into consideration even state income tax. And that depends on what state you live in. I have a doctor in New York who loathes, um, <laughs> loathes tax time. We had that conversation the other day where he was about to take a distribution. He's made more money than he has in actually in his career. And he's thinking, okay, I said, well, we need to take the money out of your business account. It's got to come at some point. He's already maxed out his SEP. So he took his 50000 and unfortunately, he's sitting on a couple hundred thousand dollars. And that only means one thing, a six-figure tax bill. Just with the money, that's not including the tax month taxes that he's paid this year. <laughs> 
So it gets a little difficult to swallow when you figure that you've paid enough money to buy a house in any given year. You know, we've started looking into some other realistic and I want to stress legal options Mm -hmm. as far as what doctors can do. And we've come across a topic that it used to be a little taboo a couple of years ago, but it's definitely getting seeing the light of day and the IRS has actually blessed them now and said there's no problem with it. And that's small captive insurance companies. We've been talking with accounting and tax expert Alan Connor, president of My Professional CFO, and he was talking about a tool that he's talking to a lot of physicians about, particularly those that are working in that contracting space, 1099 type relationships. And you mentioned the captive insurance company. What exactly are we talking about there? We're literally talking about the ability for, in this case, a physician or a practice group of physicians who can actually create their own insurance company and insure themselves. For malpractice or for health? What are we talking about? Excellent, excellent question, because when you ask a doctor what their biggest risk is, most of them will say, well, it's malpractice, because that's what makes the news the majority of the time is large malpractice judgments. And of course, doctors obviously pay significant malpractice insurance premiums. But when we refer to captive insurance companies, what we're more referring to is what I explained to doctors as business interruption insurance. Now, most doctors, if you ask them, what is the single thing that would stop you from practicing medicine? Most of them would say a large malpractice judgment. And then when you start thinking about it, a little longer and deeper into the conversation, it's what allows them to practice medicine in the first place, and that's their medical license. So what you look at is a captive insurance company as a business interruption insurance policy, which would allow them to insure the loss of their medical license or the loss of their hospital privileges. The reason we started delving more into this particular topic is uh, I said I had a client in New York. He practices a specialty called teleneuromonitoring. He's actually licensed in more than 30 different states has privileges in more than 100 different hospitals. His biggest fear, we started having this conversation about a year ago when his income was steadily rising, of what if he had a bad outcome in a state that he didn't reside in and he lost his license in that state because they just said, well, he practices telemedicine. He's not a resident of our state. His biggest concern was the avalanche or more or less the domino effect of, well, one state cancels his license and then another and another and another and another just because a prior state canceled his license. Is that a, an occurrence that happens? It actually has happened. A lot of states, if you have, will require doctors to report if a, another state has actually terminated their medical license. For him, it was a fear that he had so many licenses and so many hospital privileges that it was a concern to him that what would happen. Strange enough, what brought us on this conversation about business interruption was he lost his power during Superstorm Sandy. He was literally out of work for two weeks while they restored power to his neighborhood. So we talked about kind of business interruption. And then we started going down the road of, okay, well, what are the things that would actually cause you to be put out of business? The nice thing about the captive insurance company is a doctor or a practice group can actually put away as an insurance premium up to $1.2 million a year as a business interruption insurance policy. This would be in addition to their malpractice, in addition to their health insurance coverage. The one difference is they own the insurance company. It's a risk that is so severe that if you ever needed to collect on the insurance policy, you would be out of business because you'd have lost your medical license. However, the only time you would do that is if you lost your medical license. There are some significant tax benefits to it as well, 
primarily that if you're a medical practice that makes several million dollars a year in excess profits, $1.2 million a year in premium that you're paying to your insurance company, it's almost a $600,000 income tax savings on an annual basis. So a doctor can create this type of a company along with partners or whatnot, put up to the $1.2 million a year, and then 10, 15 years go by, they've done this, they haven't lost their medical license at all, they decide they want to retire, they can literally close down their insurance company and they withdraw all the money and only pay long-term capital gains on it. So then they would just do it a, as they're dissolving the company, then it's just a, a distribution then of it's the funds di that remain. It just becomes a distribution to them, but there's a preferential tax treatment to it. That When they start the insurance company, they put their capital into it. When they close it, they take their capital out. And since they've held it for more than a year, it qualifies as a long-term capital gain under the tax benefits. Now, the strange thing is that's a better tax benefit than their IRA account. Because your IRA withdraws at your income tax at your earned income tax rate, so there's actually some income tax benefits as far as that as well. I mean, we've talked about doing this with an independent physician who might have maybe two hundred, two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year excess that they don't want to pay taxes on. Now, obviously, the question then becomes: if a doctor has a couple hundred extra thousand dollars a year in income taxes, my physician in New York, it was a question of whether or not he established a captive or whether his wife wanted a bigger house. Once he got past that discussion, we moved into it. To fund that, are they after-tax dollars? I guess they're not, though, because you're you're an independent contractor. No, they're all they're all pre-tax dollars because it is most definitely an insurance premium. Okay. It's it's no differently. You know, a doctor might make a uh, a malpractice premium on a monthly basis. No differently than you make your car insurance payment, your house insurance payment, it would be your business interruption insurance payment. And this isn't something exclusive to physicians. It works very well for physicians, especially because there's an asset protection component to it as well that can also be used. Now, if you're going to start this kind of captive insurance plan for your practice, whether it's solo or a group practice, do you have to come with some minimum amount of deposit to start it? It's not an inexpensive proposition. If a doctor has it anywhere from Two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars. That's about what you're looking to do on an annual basis to contribute to on an annual basis to start it. It's not something that's an inexpensive proposition. But if you're, but I mean, you got to stroke a check when you start it. You got to stroke a check for something like that. Yes, you do. But if you look at it from the perspective of it's still your insurance premium, so you're effectively moving the money from your right pocket like to your left pocket. It's like a deferred payment plan. That's that's very close to what it resembles. For example, we you know I talked about setting up a pension plan for yourself. A doctor can set up a pension plan for himself. Now, let's just use an example of a doctor with a medical practice. It might be multiple doctors, multiple nurses, multiple support staff, some billing people. If a doctor wants to set up a pension for himself in that type of a scenario, he's going to have to contribute on behalf of those employees as well, not just himself. So in order for him to contribute $200,000 a year to that plan for himself, he's probably going to have to contribute somewhere to fifty dollars to $60,000 a year on behalf of his employees. That's a great thing. I mean, I'm, I'm a b definitely a believer in taking care of your employees, but I, I I have spoken with doctors who say, I give 20% of my employees' payroll to their cash balance plan, which is another name for the pension plan, and I can't even get loyalty. I can't even get my employees to stay. They find out how much money I've put into their plan, and they've left after two years. So I'm paying for all this, and I'm not even getting loyalty from my employees. So what we talked to him about was, well, your pension plan is costing you $10,000 a year for the accounting work on it. You're having to contribute $40,000 a year for your employees. A captive insurance company would actually be cheaper. You can still give your employees a 10% 401k contribution and still take care of your employees. 
But if what you're trying to get with a 401k or any kind of retirement plan is loyalty and longevity in your employees and you're not getting it, the other option is self-fund your own captive insurance company and that way you're keeping the funds. That's an interesting idea. I mean, how often are you seeing providers start to take advantage of that kind of option? I think there's a lot of people that are looking at it right now. You know, it's one of those things where it takes a lot to get your head around, okay, I'm going to start an insurance company and what are the, what's the process in doing it? I'm getting more and more doctors that I'm talking to that are saying, yeah, let's start talking about this and let's see how it's going to work and let's look at what my cash flows were this year and what I could possibly put away for next year. So it's typically about a year lead time for a doctor to say, okay, this is something that I really want to do for next year and start looking at what their income is to see what what they can fund. Because there's two sides to it. One, you want to fund it as much as you possibly can, but you don't want to have this significant asset that you then have to dissolve and start over, or it it might be difficult to access the funds. Do you have other tools or recommendations for the small to maybe mid-sized practice provider that could be a benefit for them to think about? The first thing I tell every every doctor, is, especially part of a practice, is to definitely start looking first at the pension plan options. But also, you can get some doctors together who can form an insurance company together. It's not just one doctor, one company. If you have a practice group of say five doctors, each doctor could theoretically put in $50,000 a piece and you've definitely reached the threshold to where it makes sense. You're already in the same business. You already share the same business risks. So all you're doing is going one step forward. What's the additional benefit of having other people kicking in into one self-funded company? Like well, talking the, about? the benefit of that is it's going to lower the threshold for any one doctor to participate. For example, if your threshold to make it financially viable is $250,000, I think it's much more likely that a doctor would say, yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll do this for 50000 for this year if my four other partners will contribute along with it. I think that's a lot easier to digest financially than wrapping your head around, okay, I'm going to come up with $250,000. These are the doctors that you're already in practice with. You're already partners with them. You're literally just expanding your current business and saving yourselves all some taxes. There are other professionals involved in it aside from just myself. You know, We actually work with a captive manager to actually oversee all of this and, and go through these details. But to some extent, you are doing some reinsuring as well. So if you're doing it as part of a group, then you're doing it to the extent where you're also reinsuring each individual within the group as well. So you are literally sharing risk, but there are limits to your risk because you are reinsuring that as well. Do you want to tell folks where they can get in touch with you for more information about what we're talking about? Yes, we are on Facebook, My Professional CFO. And on Twitter, we are at MyProCFO, and then the website is MyProfessionalCFO.com. As far as if I want to have you as my accountant, because I know that's a service that you'll provide to those practices as well. That's just kind of a, an ongoing monthly retainer, essentially, that gets me access to, you were talking about some payroll services and some other accounting services that you'll provide in addition to be able to give them some advice on some of these tax strategies that we're talking about. Yes. For the independent contractor physicians, we do the small business payroll accounting, payroll, payroll taxes. We do that as a monthly retained service. Most communications take place by email, but I'm available to clients pretty much business hours every day. Do you have any final thoughts for the provider that might be listening before we let you get back over to the office? If you actually have any questions about it or you're thinking about it, want a little more details, just feel free to give us a call. Shoot us an email.
And if you're listening to the podcast for today's show and you've not done so already, if you go up to the upper left-hand corner of the Top Docs Radio Show page, you'll find the Apple logo. That'll take you over to the iTunes store to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast. Subscribe to us so you can get the weekly episode downloaded straight to your device. You can check it out on your way to work, walking the dog, whatever the case may be for you. Turn around and share this information, if you would, with your social media network. You might just put some information in the hands of somebody that you care about and you didn't even realize it just by sharing this information. Alan Connor of my professional CFO. I appreciate you taking some time to come by and share some strategies because we love to be able to provide some information that help our colleagues out there, maybe reduce a little bit of risk, maybe drop a little bit more money to the bottom line. Every time someone, uh, you know, in Congress or in the media talks about reducing costs in healthcare, it's always just paying the doctors less is always what it seems to be that that ends up meaning. So if we can help them operate their practice a little bit more efficiently, maybe save some revenue that they've worked hard for um, through either tax strategy or, or other things that you can recommend for them, we certainly like to do that. So really appreciate you stopping by. For all the folks who made us a part of their day-to-day, we want to say thanks so much. Make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 